This is Grace Grit and Getting It Done, the podcast for women who want to focus on their personal development and their professional priorities, increase their earnings, expand their influence, and advance up the leadership ladder all the way into the C-suite. Hi, I'm your host, Lisa Gillette. My podcast, Grace Grit and Getting It Done, offers a practical guide for women working in the corporate arena. Weekly episodes feature conversations with recognized experts, authors, and influencers. I'm covering topics from navigating corporate culture and coping with gender bias to prioritizing self-care and managing work-life balance. For more information, or if you'd like to contact me, send an email to lisa at bigsky.coach. Why are so many managers falling short when they're promoted into a leadership role? Well, my guest today is Brielle Valley, and she's an expert at transforming managers into leaders. She's the owner of Brielle Valley Consulting, a leadership consulting firm focused on educating managers to achieve a cohesive and equitable culture. Brielle holds a BS in communication and MS in organizational communication and leadership and has publications with Pearson, Sage Publishing, and Information Age Publishing. She's a highly esteemed speaker and the author of Default to Responsibility, Women's Plight During COVID and the Solution to Reaching Equity. Brielle, welcome. I am so excited you're here today. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Oh, uh, let's dive in about your book, Default to Responsibility, Women's Plight During COVID and the Solution to Reaching Equity. What was that initial motivation that said to you, I've got to write this book? You know, in the early innings of the pandemic, I was observing the many shifts that were happening as a society. For many, working from home became the new normal. Schooling from home uh, followed suit. Daycares closed and really any scheduled maintenance, such as having your home cleaned, if you were fortunate enough to have that support, was placed on hold for the most part. And I knew that at the heart of these changes um, were going to be affecting women the most. They would carry the burden of additional responsibility sets within the home. And it makes sense because if you are in the home, uh, more you will have to do more uh, just naturally, right, as a byproduct. So more laundry to launder, dishes to clean, uh, meals to make. And that is all in addition to working remotely um, in many cases. If you were fortunate and a non-essential worker, so to speak. Um, but I, I think that I was thinking about how that balance was going to be taking place or not. And it turns out I wasn't off the mark in my assertion. Um, and the book really depicts an accurate picture of what women and families endured. So I wanted to put pen to paper and capture these stories, but also make suggestions to organizations about how to prepare for crisis and how to recover from them with um, equality being really my main motivation. Equality is such an issue. McKinsey actually did a survey with Lean In in 2021, and it was so clear the statistics of the impact of having to work at home and not only do all the domestic chores, but also the business chores and how, and I'll just say this very uh, bluntly, fathers found it great because when the kids came into the Zoom call, it was like, oh, dad is being a supportive parent. Look, he's taking care of the kids. And when mom had the kid in the background during the Zoom call, there was this thought of, don't you have childcare? Can't you have your kids do something else? I mean, the disparity in the judgment was so great. 
let's dive in a little bit more about the book and exactly the impact upon women's leadership and women's entry, not only into management, but into senior roles of leadership. In your book, talk about how you pulled apart the critical issues around women's career advancement and the impact of the pandemic on that advancement. Yeah, you just hit the nail on the head with what you um, really demonstrated there of women being criticized and men being praised for parenting. And uh, um, what I really saw was a force of women um, either doing all of it, so they were working around the clock or uh, being forced to step away. So the amount of people that I spoke with who were either encouraged to um, take time, uh, which really was code for perhaps you should focus on being a mom, uh, was overwhelming. And so what ended up happening was women just really did not end up sleeping. Um, And even in the process of going through this with women, there were many in um, tears and their motivation in speaking with me is that they wanted something to change because even if they made recommendations to the organizations for what could be changed, no one was listening and um, that agility was not there. So if you think about how many jobs were lost and then um, compound that with how many women were forced out of the workforce, it's no question that we just wiped out this massive pool of people namely women, um, who are now going to not be up for that next promotion. So we, um, you know, you read the McKinsey study, we stepped back by over 80 years, 80 plus years, um, they believe from a pay parity perspective. So I, I think really, really impactful of what occurred there and organizations could have been um, at the crux of supporting it or fixing it. Obviously, still a lot of work to do and a lot of work to recover as we go forward. Speak to me a little bit about what motivated you to find this journey, this path, your business of creating more equity and equality within the culture of management. Yeah, you spoke about differentiation between management and leadership um, in the beginning of your show. And I think that if you really understand those nuances, you understand that a manager should also be able to lead. Um, that is our ideal, right? That, that's why you and I are here. That's why we, we do the work that we do. But what's interesting to see is that in most cohesive teams, there is trust among members and there is psychological safety. So that is a core tenant of employee engagement. And it is unlikely that trust will be established if unconscious bias governs the team. And it is also unlikely that work group members will feel psychologically safe if there is rampant prejudice. Um, that's all very easy to understand, right? But if managers are taught to lead um, equitably, cohesion will follow. And so we cannot focus on standard management tactics um, such as EQ or communication alone. We must incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion into um, just the educational narrative. You mentioned something really interesting that I just want to pin, put a pin in, and that was there is unconscious bias as human beings. This is part of our survival system, but there's also conscious bias, and we see that so clearly in the number of women who were getting promoted into that first step of management versus 
the number of men who were getting promoted into that first management rung before the pandemic. And then it became even clearer during the pandemic that men were still really seven out of 10 men who came into the workforce were getting into that first managerial role. While it was before the pandemic, four out of 10 women, it dropped to about two and a half. Talk a little bit about conscious bias and that perspective of what a leader should look like, whether they have the qualities to lead, motivate and inspire, but talk a little bit about the impact of conscious bias. Sure. On... Yeah. It's a fascinating question because so controlled processing is a concept that DEI experts use to try to help people understand that you have control over um, your prejudice and over whether or not you choose to be prejudiced. So as you alluded to unconscious bias, there are a lot of things happening in our brain. There's a lot of um, psychological components to it um, and fundamentally uh, more just as, as humans. But being th that as it may, controlled processing really enables a person to stop um, pause, reflect, and then act with the information that they have. The problem is that we allow our um, instinct or our initial bias to take the lead as opposed to saying, okay, what do I know about this person? And a really good way around that is asking more questions, um, creating a storyline, getting to know the person because that will fill in the gaps. So that's just an easy tactic to implement um, right and left that can combat um, that, that very in intentional, dare I say, um, prejudice and, and how to go around that. So let me reverse engineer this a little bit. As a manager who is new to a leadership role and has been very good at following uh, or sustaining or creating a process and now has to motivate and inspire their team, and they're working to be, I'll just use a very overused phrase, open-minded, what is one of the steps they can take with their team, their new team, to try and open up this perspective of, wait a minute, let's stop, take a beat, let's consider whether we're following an unconscious bias that's been really ingrained in us, whether we're dealing with a conscious bias, how would a manager who's relatively new in a leadership role communicate that trait to their team? Great question. There's a couple of things that can be done, but what I will say is twofold. There is, of course, organizational policy, and then there is work group policy. So one of the things that I really find to be vital is creating a team charter with mores and taboos within your work group. So you do need to follow the overarching theme or mission or vision of a company, but more than that, you need to identify what the expectations are within your team. So not only language, um, but also the microculture within, you know, the, hallmarks of achieving that equitable culture starts with those work groups um, performance right that's a key indicator how is the team um, performing and uh, what are they able to control to the overarching uh, 
I guess, feel is perhaps a, a good way to describe culture at times. Um, but I'd argue that the equality being the base line of what expectations look like. And that's why our uh, managers must be empowered because it often stems from the from the, the top. And if the top is um, your manager, that's where it needs to commence. Exactly. And you point to something that is so prevalent today where there is a lot of talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion because senior management is beginning to realize this is an issue. It needs to be resolved but it's just talk. There's very little action. Uh, one of the other things that I noticed in the McKinsey study we referenced a little bit earlier in 20, that occurred in 2021 is that women in senior management were tasked, not supported, but tasked with creating DEI programs and, and being more inclusive and being more accommodating. And yet senior management really didn't support the effort. They talked about it. So in a situation like that, if you were talking to senior leaders who were women or diverse leaders, how would you coach them to resolve this disconnect between what senior management was telling them and what was actually happening? That's <laughs> a very frustrating circumstance yeah, exactly. and I know one that we've, we've been in. Um, if you do not have the support from the top, uh, which I have been a part of those organizations, I have worked with those organizations, you are swimming, yeah, you're swimming against the stream. And uh, because I work with managers, right, I am not um, working with executives primarily because I feel that the management cohort is underserved. So a lot of my job is actually trying to pitch and or sale, uh, sell the idea to senior executives that they need to invest in their people. Um, it's not dissimilar from saying that they need to in invest in diversity, equity, inclusion. And to your point, it was a checkbox. It was a mark for companies to say, yes, we're, we're doing this. Um, that should help us hire or, you know, in theory, that should help us um, retain our, our teams. But if they're not doing it, your um, retention will actually increase, right? Because if they're, they're not walking the walk, and that's a core tenant of management, um, really acting to who you say you want to be. But a, a big piece of that, uh, Lisa, is that I would incorporate DEI education, or I should say I do rather incorporate DEI education into the management um, coaching. So if you want to be an effective manager, I want to give you concepts of how to be a leader and injected within that is how do you lead an inclusive team? Um, so if you can't sell the idea of DEI being important, then you can sell the idea of uh, management being important and, then you, important and then you can take it upon yourself to ensure that that's part of the rhetoric and probably the most important part. Oh my gosh, totally agree because that's what most executives are looking at is the bottom line. Oh my gosh, we're losing employees. Um, they're, they're not engaged when they're here and then we lose them. Brielle, I've got to ask you this question that has, it, it, it can be taken from so many angles, but why is confidence often mistaken for experience and expertise? You and I have spoken about this very briefly in the past, and I, I know that we have a lot of thoughts there, uh, so I will try to be concise. But there's a fair amount of literature on this topic, 
and um, I can speak to it though firsthand and uh, simply from observation. So confidence is often mistaken for experience and right. expertise, right? right? Because of perception. Right. And I will never forget um, perception is reality is what one owner of a business used to say. Correct. So I think that that's warranted. And we internalize confidence as competence, but it certainly is not the same. You can be incredibly confident and charismatic, uh, which encourages people to believe in what it is that you are saying. Logically, there is a correlation there, right, between confidence and leadership effectiveness. A person with low confidence um, will certainly have difficulty um, not only with management duties like conducting meetings or um, initiating performance discussions and, and just leading right an organization overall but at times confidence or i should say perhaps overconfidence is used to absorb power that's yes. how i see it and the yes. person does not have the knowledge um, to match the confidence that is being portrayed so i think that's even um more concerning about this is that women struggle already with portraying confidence. We know that um, being in the field that we are in, and I will admit that I have struggled with that myself. And um, compared to men, that is something that women are already trying to overcome. So if we look at the makeup of women and men in the workforce and leadership roles, um, we see that that distinction already as a baseline. So we need people like you um, or like me working with women to help them portray their competence um, confidently, right? We have to flip it. Right. Show your competence confidently. Uh, and <laughs> we need to help those uh, who are intelligent and perhaps maybe less chatty or less boisterous uh, to boost their confidence so that the rise, right people rise up those ranks. Yeah, I want to you touched on a word too that uh, charisma and in terms of the charismatic leader, many times that can be taken for a visionary leader. And we have seen so many examples of late of someone who might be charismatic or very compelling to certain into uh, to a certain group of people. And they come across as very charismatic to that group. And yet the vision is non-existent. Uh, uh, but, but let's, let's, I, I really want to talk about the actual markers of the ineffective manager, because you had mentioned that, you know, the focus on processes, not people. And the, one of the negative side effects is that we're losing people. Talent, referred to often as the leaky pipeline, where talent just leaves because they're not getting those options to actually step into leadership roles, whereas other people who look like leaders are. What are some other markers of managers when you go into an organization and you probably can see very clearly some of the issues that need to be resolved? Can you talk to those issues? Sure. I think that there are a lot to choose from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, observationally, and I think it's as you have more time with people, you pick up on things um, more right. quickly. But, um, you know, micromanagement is one that you might not see off the top of your head. But if mm -hmm. somebody gives a task, and then um, a lot of it is, you know, just taking it over and, and not allowing somebody to have their voice and, and quite frankly, not empowering them or trusting them to do the work. Um, taking credit for that work, of course, is one that I think is more easy to observe um, what somebody did. And, and it, a lot of times, if you think about it, it wouldn't be possible for 
one person to do so many things. So perhaps right. they're they're taking credit from somebody else. Um, and, and you know, lack of empathy is one that I see quite a yeah. bit. Um, yeah. And that goes back to who or what you want to portray as a manager, but um, an absence of empathy surely does not equate to success, even though we have this 1950s ideal of, of what perhaps good management looks like. And, and subjective listening, which I think we could argue goes into the unconscious bias piece um, yes, or, or perhaps absolutely. very active, <laughs> active bias. So a lot, a lot of different <laughs> elements to look for in an effective management. Yeah, um, you touched on something that I find so interesting, and and uh, one of I think the skills that have to be learned for any new leader is that ability to delegate. And as women, sometimes uh, we're used to multitasking, and I know there's a lot of controversy about whether you can actually anyone can be good at multitasking. But in terms of delegating, when you're working with a team that's got that sort of and I'm just going to use an overused phrase, command control type of management style, because that is a style. Mm -hmm. How do you go in and actually speak to people who are managers and encourage them to delegate? What is the tool you use to get them to start delegating? Because it's such a critical skill set. It it, it is critical. And I've seen a lot of men and women be pretty poor at it. So I think that mm -hmm. one, I don't want to say it's gender neutral, but I, I do think a lot of people struggle because of control or a fear of an absence of control. But uh, feedback is what I look to. Um, so they have to be willing to receive it. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. <laughs> I think that the best um, use of a team when you're trying to elicit change is to capture feedback. And uh, that's something a lot of different um, consultants do this, but I, I do it through what I call a thermometer principle. And the idea is, you know, where are we not um, really successful or where are we falling short? And not only as people, right, but that's going to impact our projects. So understanding the feedback of, gosh, I, I really thought I could own this by myself or I was told that I could. And then it looked like that wasn't going to be um the the outcome and the product turned out to be not mine at all so i, I do look to feedback as being our um, pivoting force in helping to change behavior so other than um, feedback as fostering an inclusive environment and the ability of the manager to delegate and actually honestly function as a role model for their mm -hmm. team to learn how to not only give and accept feedback but also to delegate what other hallmarks are you looking at as you go in and do the deep dive in an organization that has hired you besides that ability to give feedback, that ability to delegate? What other traits are you looking to instill into managers to help yeah. them become leaders? I really want to help educate them on different leadership types and styles. And also, I want to inform them and uh, jointly arm them with a lot of psychology, um, a lot of data about how our brains work. You know, the behavioral method methodology is something I subscribe to. So understanding yeah. how we function, understanding that I am um, more likely to 
like task orientation versus relationship orientation and what the pitfalls of that might be. Um, depending upon what personality assessment you choose, there, there are many, but um, the, right, there are many paths to the same summit in that you might learn that you need a lot of feedback or you need a lot of recognition or accolades, or actually you just love people and you're in a role that you're not being social. So um, there's, there's, there's strength-based leadership. There's, um, of course, the foundational knowledge of servant leadership and you know mm -hmm. ethical leadership. There, there's so many nicks and crannies. So I do go back to the feedback to say, what are some of these downfalls? And then how can I educate this person to learn the nuances of something that will resonate with them? What are their values? Okay, values might motivate them. And so if that's a motivating factor, right. that will then encourage the change as well. So it is um, overarching in uh, my, my purpose and, and how I try to not only educate, but draw upon a lot of research um, that was done before me. I love the depth of your methodology. Um, a little bit of a left turn here. When you're working with a new manager and a new team, how do you build that cohesive, I'm just going to use group mindset within mm. the team when they've got a new manager? What, what tools do you use to, to create that sense of team identity? I'll go back to what we spoke about very briefly, but I, I am a very strong believer in a team charter because it guides mm -hmm. decision making and mm -hmm. it also holds everyone accountable for what they say, how they act. Um, and just the standards of behavior. But more than that, I, I think there is a pairing of um, a shared ideal and right. unity. So even if you think about what it looks like when two people on a team are frustrated with somebody else, they have that unifying <laughs> um, moment, right? That, that connector of, oh, we don't like this person. And that really um, helps their relationship hilariously. And, and that's hard for organizations. But if you can channel that power that we have as people to say, what is our unifier? What is the thing that we share, right? Are we winners? Do we want to win? Is that, is that our goal? Um, is something that everyone can sink their teeth into um, so that they're working together and not against each other, right? That's the, the secret sauce that we're always trying to figure out. What is the thing that makes people tick? Right. That shared collective vision is so much a part of that. Once you understand who the players are and the personalities, there's this really old saying that even when you go to a new job, the names may have changed, the faces may have changed, but you're still <laughs> dealing with the same set of personalities. Definitely. <laughs> you know, that's uh, it's so funny. So in terms of a woman, because I, I mostly work with women and I know you work with men and women, but for a woman stepping into a leadership role who may be challenged by some of the new team she's either inherited or um, has been assigned to her team, how would you coach, counsel, and guide her if she was working with a dysfunctional team, she'd inherited it? Mm -hmm. okay. what, yeah, no, that that that's that's great because the distinction between men and women isn't always relevant, but in other times it is most relevant. Um, and for both circumstances, I think we need to start with defining what a good manager looks like. So, 
how can we really stay true to what you need to achieve first and foremost, because we can deal with all of the personalities and all the challenges as they, they come, um, but more pre-work perhaps need to be done uh, on the, the forefront, which is why they need to understand those complex and nuanced topics managers should have. What's that playbook that they can go, okay, what do I do in this situation? References, right, resources. But um, for, for women generally, there's a push-pull between being assertive and being accused of being um, aggressive. I mean, this yeah. has happened to me, um, <laughs> well, me too. many, yeah. many times, you know, yes. you're aggressive. And, and I will never forget saying to my, my male superior, um, that is so interesting. I think you mean assertive. And, you know, just, just that response in and of itself is, is somewhat assertive. So I, I like the irony there. But I think the point is that you need to do it in a way that is not so combative because um, we look at women as having this harsh edge, even though it might be smoother or rounder than a man's. But right. um, what I always like to push is the idea of increase that strength um, with your warmth or vice versa. Many women are strong, so I, I don't really want to say that women have to increase their strength. I think it's there fundamentally, but they do need to increase their warmth. Um, it just so happens that's how you influence people, right? That is right. the same is true for men, but for women, because of double standards, um, I, I right. am always very focused on the warmth piece. And then we dive into how could that be, right? How do we look at empathy? Brielle, I love that term aggressive versus assertive because it points to exactly the verbiage around the double standard that all women leaders, women managers suffer from. You know, there's that example of, oh, well, he's very clear. Oh my gosh, she over communicates. Oh, he's just passionate. He gets excited. She is hysterical. He is very direct. She is a witch with a capital B. Can you just talk about the elephant in the room, which is the double standard when you're, whether you're a manager or a leader and what is considered okay for men's behavior versus women's behavior? You just um, gave such a, a good overview of so many examples that we see day in, day out. And um, I think that we could spend a lot of time discussing why it's so frustrating because we know that it is. We are women. We have lived it. We have seen it. We have helped women out of it. Um, but the biggest thing for me is looking to allies within the organization. And it, it, it's something that working with men or women, um, it's something that I, I want to encourage them to look for. Because if somebody else uses their voice to say, actually, that's interesting, I don't see it that way, or um, something as light touch as, hmm, well, maybe you could call me that too. Um, just kind of showing likeness and not differences is really significant. I mean, e even take such a simple example as a person who may not like you and they go, oh, well, we're just so different. If you pause and you go, actually, what are the things that we're similar uh, about? Or, or how are we like alike? I think that that breaks down some of those barriers. And so if we can do that in the workplace, specifically with those who typically hold more power, i.e. a man, um, that will really help reframe and hopefully squash a lot of those double standards. I love the fact that you've actually got simple to remember scripts, like how different are we really? Let's look at how we're the same. Um, that it, building rapport, I think is one of the 
most important traits that a leader can develop that ability to communicate with a variety of different people and especially as a woman in a leadership role that's a really important trait um, i want to take another left turn here and just talk about some of your uh influencers and role models that drew you to your work. Could you talk about some of your early experiences where you said, yeah, this is the path I'm going to take? Absolutely. I um, feel so honored because a professional colleague of ours, Gloria Felt, um, who, who yes. we, we know and, and respect, um, was a role model of mine in college. I actually received uh, her book, No Excuses, from a peer of mine. She was like, I think you'll like this because we had anthropology classes together and we were really fascinated by um, a lot of the, the female discourse and, and what was happening. There's always something happening, right? And then, <laughs> um, in, our, in our time that we're observing um, in our history as being women. But little did I know that this person would then um, write the foreword for my book that we, we spoke about um, last year. And, and that's a really neat full circle. So um, she was definitely a role model. And I would say more holistically, um, so many women in my life have been there for me, either given me opportunities um, from a business perspective, uh, client opportunities, or um, internships uh, back when I was in undergrad, or working with professors for um, publications. And they were all women. Um, they, they lifted me up and I just thought that was so not only encouraging, but I was motivated by it. And it was in that process of me learning how do I give this back to others that they then demonstrated that same type of gratitude that um, I just felt that it was a, a good way for me to move forward. And so our aim, our goal is that we can help change the world um, in, in very light ways, but import, important ways. Yes, yes. I, you know, we change the world by impacting for the better one person at a time. Speak to me just a little bit, because um, this is a question I'd love to ask all my guests. If you could tell your younger self some advice or encouragement, what would you say to your younger self? I would say that Rome wasn't built in a day, <laughs> but in in all seriousness, because um, I think we could leave it at that, but in all seriousness, I, I would hit the point home that failing is more than okay <laughs> and that yeah. it is really important because it builds resiliency, which is going to help us in life. Um, I was so afraid of failure and I really do not like to fail. And I'm finally getting to the point in my life where I'm learning how to fail. And I think that I dare I say I'm embracing it um, because I can then use that, that moment to say, okay, this is what I can base this failed um, experience and, and try again. But grit is, is important. Grit is an, an essential piece of life. And really, if you think about what it is I do, I'm trying to help others improve, right? And so I need to stay committed to that um, myself. Your commitment is so clear. And I love, um, and I'm just going to use another name that's been an influencer for me, Carol Dweckt, who's at Stanford. I believe she's the head of the psychology department who uh, wrote about growth mindset. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I find so helpful is that idea of saying, well, I tried this thing. It didn't work out the way I thought it would. 
is it a failure or was it an experiment that gave me some information that I didn't know before? And now I've got a roadmap to do it differently and hopefully much better and more effectively next yep. time. I, I mean, I think that's such an important, that's such an important point you made. Um, let me ask you uh, a little bit more about the myth methodology of your work. If I had a business, which I do, but I'm the sole employee, I work with some vendors. Um, but if I had employees and I wanted to hire you and bring you in to do an assessment and to help my employees become better managers and embrace DEI and create greater employee engagement and retention, which we know drive the bottom line by either saving or generating revenue, um, how would we start that conversation? What sort of thing would you be asking me? Definitely. I, I want to understand what the crux of maybe the issue or opportunity is. A lot of time people say, oh, well, I think that this person could use professional development. Well, what does that mean? A lot of times it means that they have <laughs> some um, harsh elbows or sharp elbows. <laughs> I get a lot of those. And it's interesting because we're just, we're, we're using then data to um, help individuals be more successful. So even though somebody might be classified as a problem child, odds are um, I don't see them that way, especially when, when they're female, it's just because they have to increase that warmth. Right. But um, typically for right. me, it, it's twofold. You know, I'm trying to get um, diversity, equity, inclusion material um, into the hands of people, and I'm trying to make it a norm and an expectation. A lot of times companies want to check a box, right? So they want to do one training and then have it be done. Um, right. I, right, you understand. Um, and, and I think what I aim to do is if I must concede, I will absolutely do one of those trainings with the hope that they see the value and that there is a chance for recurring programming. But if I have my way, I, um, actually work with individuals one-on-one -on -one coaching curriculum, which I focus on communication approaches. I focus on self-assessments, EQ, um, a lot of theory, um, not only about leadership, but um, actually the, the psychological components that we've discussed. And then I inject all of the, the D&I curriculum uh, within that. So I, I like this one-on-one -on -one approach of learning. And I would actually even argue that I'm more of an educator than a coach, um, just mm -hmm. based on, on how I talk about information and, and then how we use it um, almost like a, a, a book a book study each week but no it's not that tedious <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love uh, I just love your approach I mean I, I have such respect for you which is why I asked you to be on this program but I want to ask you specifically because I know this will really impact my listeners we have this term called executive presence, I tend to use the phrase leadership profile because there needs to be a real conscious approach to where am I maybe, you know, throwing my elbows around, which is what I used to do when I was in uh, senior management. Talk a little bit about two components that are part of executive presence, one body language mm -hmm. and the other one communication style. Start with body language. I'm so interested to hear your thoughts about how women can embrace this and actually use it to help their leadership qualities. Sure, yeah. Um, body language is one of the sessions for um, my, my coaches. So it's very, it's important to me because everything from 
how we speak, which has more to do with verbal cues, to how we present ourselves. And if you look through a lot of images of our, our presidents, which unfortunately are, are all men, but that's okay, right. we'll change that. Um, we see a lot of quote unquote power poses. You know, Amy Cuddy did a lot of research in this regard. Yes. I'm a huge proponent. I think it's fantastic and I've definitely tested it out and I think it's pretty powerful and how you can actually physically lower your cortisol. Um, but we, we focus on not only um, the tone that we're using and how there's credibility associated with um, an absence of light voices or, or lower yes. decibels. Um, and then we also pair that with how are you, what is your posture? How are you standing? What are you doing with your hands? What are you doing with your eye contact? What is your handshake? So a lot of that is um, something that's published and we can look and say, oh, interesting. Okay. This correlates to that. So we can work against it. But then the other piece of it is really getting um, some type of camera or recording, which is so easy in this day and age. You know, right. you, you do a pitch meeting or um, your Zoom was recorded. What were you looking at? Were you slouched? Uh, were you really trying to engage with the person? Were you looking at yourself? Were you looking at your notes? Were you unsure? So a, a lot of that goes into it. And that's what we try to work through um, for the body language piece. I, I think it's so important to acknowledge that there are skills that we can learn, whether we're men or women, to mm -hmm. actually improve our ability to communicate, to be seen, heard, and understood. So I'm noticing that there's an approach that you have that's behavioral. There's the self-evaluation when you're educating the actual manager. And then there's the leadership component, the actual building out. So if people wanted to reach out to you, what is the fastest way they could connect with you? Fastest way is my website or LinkedIn. Um, there aren't many Brielle Valleys, which I guess works well for me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I try my best with social media, but I would say LinkedIn is probably the place I'm, I'm at most. And, and also my website, there's a lot of information and, and resources. And, and I do try to push out resources to people um, regularly as well from, from content um, and, and, the blog, and blog posts. And for those listeners who are not on YouTube and can't see our subtitles, Brielle Valley is B-R-I-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E, and the last name is V, like very, A-L-L-E. And you can find Brielle on LinkedIn and her website, which I believe is Brielle Valley Coaching. And would you just... RealValleyConsulting.com. And um, yes, and I wanted to make sure because you have so many listeners, which is fantastic. Um, congratulations to you. Um, anybody who has questions about either leadership or management or um, an issue that they're facing, be anyone who has listened to me through you, um, I want to be able to help them. So if there's a, an email that you want to send me or a question you want to ask me, I definitely want to respond and, and give you my full attention to help you out with um, a circumstance that you need to overcome. It, it, this has been just a fantastic episode. If there was one takeaway you wanted listeners to really remember after this, what would that be? Inclusive teams are at the root of effective management. I think that they are a mirror and we yeah. will see the benefit, um, and not only personally as people, right? The, the human element of 
who and what or where you work, but also um, the goodness of what we're trying to set the path forward for other people um, and making sure that everybody has a voice. Yeah, and that starts with leadership and managers need to be leaders. Yeah. Right. Novel. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't always work that way. It does not always work that way. Um, if you wanted to give a message to senior management, not that it, they may be listening, but if there was one takeaway for anyone in senior management who happened to be listening, would it be employee development? Would it be personal leadership development? What, what would you want to say? to senior yeah, management. You know, because it's not a us versus them, right? We're, we're hoping that Shouldn't managers be. will evolve um, and, and will continue to um, progress. It is return on investment, right? It is the fact that retention um, is important. And so if we need to quantify it, which often we do need to do, one person leaving is going to cost 1.5 to two times the salary, right? So we can boil it down to numbers. We can boil down interpersonal relations to the fact that human capital is expensive. <laughs> Recruitment right. is expensive um, and, right. and retaining talent doesn't have to be. Right, exactly. So for anyone who would like to reach out to Brielle, you can go to her website. It's BrielleValleeConsulting.com or find her on LinkedIn. And let me just spell Brielle's name one more time. It's B-R-I-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. And the last name is Valley V-A-L-L-E. Brielle, this was my absolute honor to have you on. This is such an important topic and you are so knowledgeable and skilled and I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Lisa. It was wonderful, and, and I really feel privileged. Thank you. Oh, you're the best. Thanks for listening to Grace, Grit, and Getting It Done. I'm your host, Lisa Gillette. If you'd like more information or to contact me directly, send me an email, lisa at bigsky, B-I-G-S-K-Y dot coach. Lisa at bigsky dot coach. Thanks for listening.